take a Bible, if you will, and open it to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. This page one, 906, 906 in one of these pew Bibles. Begin reading in verse uh, 19 of John chapter 20. Hear God's word. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So ends the reading of God's word. This morning I I want us to look for just a few moments at one of the persons to whom Jesus appeared after the resurrection, and that is Thomas. We refer to him often as Doubting Thomas, though by the end he's believing, but today we are very certain that doubt is good. We are an age in, in America that, that skepticism is seen as an admirable quality. In other words, we love our skepticism. We know the truly wise person is the person who knows they do not know enough to be absolutely certain about anything except that they are absolutely uncertain about everything. So I want to speak to those of you here who may be doubters, who may be skeptical, and you've been a doubter for years and years and years, and maybe you've talked to others about it, and maybe you haven't. Perhaps you've resigned yourself to your doubts and maybe even grown very comfortable with them. And I think there's much to learn here from this man, Thomas. We meet him in Scripture. His name also means twin, which is a Greek version. The name of that is Didymus. We're not told who his twin was. Uh, Only in the Gospel of John do we have some personal references, some of the things that that Thomas said. There are three of those. First, 
Earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 11, when Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, had died, uh, Jesus receives word that he is sick, and after a few days, he decides he wants to go where Lazarus is, which is back to Judea. That was the region Jesus and his disciples had literally fled from not soon before this, and the, the disciples, when they hear that Jesus wants to go back, uh, we have Thomas saying, let us also go that we may die with him. He's expecting that they will meet what they left, which was people threatening to kill Jesus. Then in John chapter 14, which occurs just a few days before this account, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he explains that he's going away to prepare a heavenly home for his followers, and that one day they will join him. And Thomas's reaction when Jesus says this is, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? That was the second reference, per personal reference we have by Thomas. And now the third is here in John chapter 20. It is his unbelief at the news of the resurrection that earns him the name Doubting Thomas. So what has transpired leading up to this? In verses 19 and following and before, we know it's the first Easter Sunday morning. Early that morning, we find here in Scripture, is that Mary had gone to the tomb and she had gone there not expecting anything will have happened, but she finds that the huge, massive stone that was in front of the tomb had been rolled away. When she sees it, she runs back to where the others are. She tells Peter and John what she had seen. And her assumption, and what she tells them, is someone's taken the body. She's not expecting a resurrection. Uh, and so they, they leave, and they run with her to the, back to the tomb, and they look inside, and there they see the burial claws, the linen claws, lying there. They, the men, then leave, go back to their homes, but Mary is left standing there by herself. And she stoops in, and when she looks into the tomb, there are two angels seated there in white clothing. And they ask, why are you weeping? And then she turns to find a man she thinks is the gardener, and it's Jesus, and he speaks with her. He says several things, but at the end of that, she runs back, she finds the disciples, and she says, I have seen the Lord. And she tells him what Jesus had said. Now, several hours pass from that morning encounter until the evening, and we just read there beginning in verse 19 that the disciples, out of fear of the Jews the, and the fact that they had been with Jesus and not knowing now if they also will be arrested, they are in this, this room, the doors are locked, they are frightened. And you might even think that since... Uh, since Mary and the others had reported to them that the tomb was empty, that maybe they were thinking Jesus was alive and that would dispel their fears, but it had not happened. They are frightened. They're having a very difficult time putting all of this together. And then in verse 19, John tells us that Jesus comes to them. And a standard greeting of the day in the Jewish world was for one to say, Peace be upon you. And the other person to whom you said that would say, Upon you be peace. And so Jesus repeats this twice, peace be upon you. Bible scholars say that he is reminding us of what he had told them earlier, just days before, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. It's always reiterating that, reminding them of that. And, and now he shows them, it tells us in verses 19 and following, he shows them his hands, he shows them his side. 
Uh, and it's like he's saying, I did what I told you I was going to do. I've won the peace for you. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit. He warns them about unforgiveness. Now, John is writing this gospel. And at this point, he kind of gives us a note. He moves off the chronological part of what happened on Sunday. And in verses 24 and 5, he says Thomas was not there. Thomas was absent that evening. And so when the other ten disciples now, Judas is no more, so there are ten left, they tell Thomas what they've seen. And Thomas says he cannot believe that, and that he will not believe unless he has some very specific, concrete evidence, proof. Unless I see, he says, the hands, the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side. In fact, it says here, I will never believe. Now, why was Thomas, you might ask, why was so Thomas, Thomas so firm in his unbelief? Uh, I mean, after all, he had been there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. He had seen some things that you would think would have helped him to believe even without being an eyewitness. Perhaps he was firm in his unbelief. Maybe he knew the implications uh, if Jesus was raised from the dead and he was his follower, he remembered that Jesus said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. Maybe he was thinking, if I really believe this, my end may be the same that I just saw Jesus's. Maybe he's bitter, maybe he's disillusioned, maybe he's hurt at such a bitter providence. There's strong evidence that even there just days before that the disciples still were expecting Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom, a political kingdom, Maybe he felt God had let him down. Maybe he was just greatly disappointed. That happens today. I meet people that are very skeptical, and often it has to do with pain in their life. They say, I prayed when I was young. God didn't deliver. I can't believe in a God like that. But the reality is we do not know the source of his unwillingness to believe. But what is clear is that he was very specific on what it would take for him no longer to doubt. He wanted first-hand empirical evidence which would be indisputable to touch the resurrected body of Jesus if they could do such a thing. Many of us here through the years have been influenced by books that were written by John Stott. Um, if I were to ask you to raise your hand if you read at least some of his articles or books, probably most of us here would do so. John Stott died in 2011. Uh, he was the worldwide known uh, Anglican uh, pastor and author, pastor of All Souls Church in London. And I found a sermon, uh, typical of Anglican, it was only 20 minutes long. Sorry, don't even think about it. Uh, and he, he preached a sermon on this passage. And he looked at a very, he had a very unique way of looking at it. But his outline started, he said, Thomas the absentee then Thomas the doubter, then Thomas the believer. And he made some ideas, ideas under Thomas the absentee. His point was, and, and I'm paraphrasing some of the things he said, he said the major reason for Thomas's unbelief at this stage, that first week, was a very practical one. He was absent. He was absent on that first Easter. We're not told why, where he was or why he was absent, whether he was detained, whether he was sick, whether he was discouraged, all we know is on that first Easter Sunday, Thomas missed the blessing because he was not there. It's pretty simple from that standpoint. 
And John Stott made the point that something similar happens every Lord's Day when God's people gather. God has promised to be present where we are gathered in his name, and he speaks through his word, and it is a calculated risk to miss it because you do not know that you may miss the blessing. Stott says there's a lesson here. He says to help us in our doubts, we should expose ourselves to God's word rather than remove ourselves. Now, these are my words. Thank you, John Stott. Now moving on. I think in our day, we think, well, if I'm a skeptic, the last place I ought to go is church. You know what that's like? That's like saying, well, I'm sick. The last place I need to go is a hospital. I need to be well before I can go in a hospital. Where should skeptics be welcomed most, those that really want to try to seek answers? In the church. Where else can we go? Where else in our culture, well, you can go online, you can go to blogs, and that's helpful. Other like-minded people, often, that are just saying the same things. Church, if you're a skeptic today, I welcome you here, and I encourage you uh, to expose yourself to the teaching of God's Word and to ask your questions. And the reason is, faith does not emerge in a vacuum. The Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't just happen normally. It doesn't just, it's not like a, a lightning bolt on a clear day. There's a process here. And so if you see yourself as a skeptic or a doubter, even an agnostic, you are more than welcome here, and I encourage you to come. And so thinking you must be a person with no doubts before attending church or participating in church um, is not the right way to approach it. Well, let's see what happens with Thomas. Now it's a week later in verse 26 that we read. And Jesus appears, and it seems as though this entire appearance is for the benefit of Thomas in light of what happens. Again, it's almost identical. We're not, we don't know if they're in the exact same room, but it just says they're locked in a room. The disciples are. Jesus appears, gives the same greeting, peace be with you. And then John tells us he speaks directly to Thomas. He says, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. As John writes this gospel, he doesn't tell us whether Thomas actually took up the Lord's offer or not. All we know that even at least just seeing Jesus standing there was enough for Thomas and his response is, and this is a powerful set of words, my Lord and my God. And that's his response. Some say that this is the strongest confession of faith in the entire Bible. Because even the word that he used here is not the word for teacher. It's not, when he says Lord, he doesn't say rabbi, he doesn't say master, he doesn't even say Messiah. In fact, the word he uses for Lord is the same word in the Old Testament for Yahweh, the high name of God. That's what he calls him. He's confessing that Jesus is Yahweh, his God, standing before him in the flesh. And then Jesus says something to him that as you look at it, it's not really a compliment. Have you believed because you've seen me? I'm in verse 29 now. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Now back to John Stott, he observed that Jesus gave Thomas what he demanded. He, let him, he gave him what he demanded. He let him touch his body or see his body and so forth. But he rebukes Thomas for demanding it. 
And he pronounces a blessing on those who believe and have not seen. Now, don't, please don't miss this. This is not commending. Jesus is not commending faith without evidence, but faith without sight. He's commending those who believe and have not seen. He's not commending someone who believes despite all the facts. Although there are many ways to know something, I believe there are two main ways when we come to believe personally in something. Um, one is just our own empirical investigation. We look, we listen, our senses are brought to bear, and that confirms what we think is real and what is meaningful and so forth. That, that's one simple way to put it. But the second way, and I believe most of the knowledge you and I have and the things we believe are through the second way, and that is through the testimony of credible witnesses. The testimony of credible witnesses. For example, I believe George Washington really lived. I believe he was the first president of the United States, but I never met him. I've never seen a photograph of him. I've never heard a recording of his voice. But I believe the historical record is reliable enough that I choose to accept the information and believe the fact that he was the first U.S. president. Now, sometimes the testimony of credible witnesses converges with our own experience, such as... Now, this is a... I don't know, you'll have to tell me whether I should have used this or not. But when I was about 10 years old in the mid-1960s, the Gemini space program and all those missions, and that was during that time. And on one of the missions, remember those were our first two-man missions, rather than just one with the early, now we have two-man missions. Some of the first ones were unmanned, but then after the astronauts were there, there was a particular mission, I think it was around 1964, 1965, and it went up and it did something totally unprecedented. The Gemini mission went higher than any one had been before. It went approximately 850 miles above the Earth's surface. And the two astronauts saw something that no human eyes had ever seen before. They saw the curvature of the Earth for 180 degrees. They could see it. Now, that had been believed before. That from math and, and looking at the stars and, every, and all the other things that came to play, that was the, the accepted belief that the earth was curved in such a way. But now, in the mid-60s, two men see it. Now there was eyewitness testimony. Was it any truer at that point? No. Now, maybe to them it was, or it was more, it was easier to embrace that truth, but it did not change the fact that it had existed. Suppose everyone today was like Thomas. Suppose here in 2014 you said, okay, I, uh, I've read this uh, biblical account, and I'm like Thomas, and I won't believe unless I see it, unless I see him, unless I touch him, then I'll believe. If that was the case, There would be no believers in the whole world. None. But today there are millions of Christians all over the planet because of the testimony of credible witnesses. That's why. We haven't seen it. We haven't touched Jesus. We haven't seen the risen Jesus. That's not normative. In fact, if people tell us that, we're very suspect. Thomas should have believed because of the testimony of the others. He had no reason to think that the other ten disciples were lying to him. 
He had been with them. There's no indication that there was a lack of trust between them. And the, and the women that had seen him, Mary and others. He should have believed. But thankfully he does believe. It concludes with Thomas being the believer, my Lord and my God. So Thomas moves from doubt to faith. And guess where that faith immediately drives him? Worship. Faith doesn't exist just in a vacuum. It produces action, and the first action is to humble yourself before God. My Lord and my God, true faith, real belief, results in action. And his life would never be the same. Now, we can't look to the scriptures after the book of Acts to know much of what happened with the early disciples. So we look to history, we look to tradition. And tradition is that Thomas served as a missionary ultimately to India. I'm told today, some of you have been to India, I've never been to India, but I'm told that there are many St. Thomas churches in India. You can go online, as I did, and there's quite an extensive website for the St. Thomas Mount. It is a, a mount, a small mountain there in Madras where Thomas supposedly was martyred for his faith. But what a, what a transformation. Doubting to faith to worship and then devoting his life to it. I have two key applications I want to make just in the closing moments. First, for the believer. For those of you here that would say that you're trusting Christ as your Redeemer, the ground of Christian faith is the testimony of the apostolic witnesses. We believe today not because we have seen him, but because they saw him. Therefore, the New Testament is vitally important. If we are seeking to speak to people about Christ, family and friends as others, it's most important to get them to read the testimony of the New Testament. That testimony is more important than your testimony. The testimony of the scriptures and the early primary witnesses, even as important as your testimony is and how God's worked in your life, your testimony is not near as important as their testimony. I was on the phone a few weeks ago with Randy Pope at Perimeter Church, and known Randy since I was a child, and we were talking about uh, as we meet with, with people, as we meet especially with men, how much does a person need to know before they can have faith? That's a question that is a hard question. How much Bible knowledge does a person need? One verse? An entire gospel? And he we were talking about meeting with men especially and going through the gospel of John and I've done that and I've used some of the things he's written and just having them read the gospel of John and then meeting once a week to talk about what they read he said Chip I can't tell you how many men I sit down with and the first time we get together they scoff at this they mock at this they say I don't believe any of this and you're a lunatic if you do believe he said, then we start reading through John, and within two or three weeks, I've had guys sit down and say to me, you know, I can't explain this, but I'm starting to believe this stuff. There's no answer except God's Spirit. It's not human persuasion. It's not trying to argue someone into believing something. But I also want you to notice that how Jesus deals, for the believer, look how Jesus deals with Thomas. He's gentle with him. He's very gentle. He caters. He stoops. Thomas, here, here are my hands. Here's my side. Touch it. Now, what a contrast to where when we read in the Gospels in the early part of his ministry, when people demanded a sign saying, if, if you are, you do this, and then we might believe. And Jesus said he, he uh, rebuked them for such an attitude. 
Why was that? Why was he gentle and, and lowered himself, you might say, to Thomas and dealt with him in a gentle matter and, and not with other people that way at times? I, I'm taking an online course with 159 other people with Ravi Zacharias and listening to Ravi Zacharias teach, and he talks about the importance not of answering the question but of answering the questioner and the importance of understanding where people are coming from when they bring their questions. He told about one of his, his associates with the Ravi Zacharias Ministries, an apologist, and he was, he was speaking somewhere, and after he had finished speaking, a young couple came up to him and said, we want to talk to you about if there's a God, how can there be pain and suffering in the world? Very common question, very good question. Entire books written on the subject. And the man was getting ready to give an answer when he glanced and he saw their infant child in some kind of holder severely deformed, and he said, it changed my whole answer because I saw now where they were coming from. So it greatly influenced how I tried to approach their question. They really wanted to know. It wasn't just an argument. I think gentle, Jesus was gentle and stooped to Thomas's demands because Thomas did seem to be a natural skeptic. He was the one that had asked questions, as I read some of those to you earlier. Maybe he was just having a difficult time, and Jesus knew that. Don't impute motives for a person's doubts without trying to understand why they've chosen not to believe. I don't know who said it. I wrote it down. Jesus distinguished between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, I can't believe. Unbelief says, I will not believe. Doubt is honest. Unbelief is obstinate. My last application would be for the doubter. If you are here today and you say, hey, I'm I'm not only like that Thomas, I'm a whole lot more. I won't believe. I don't think I can believe unless I see him. Well, I would ask you this question. What will it take for you to believe? What will it take for you to believe? One of the first times I ever had the opportunity to explain why I'm a Christian was as a senior in high school. I was with a friend of mine, and we were in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, for a Christian high school conference after, right between Christmas and New Year's, Gatlinburg. We were very close to hell. I mean, that's the way it felt in that, you know, packed. And we're outside, and it's just this, you know, beer bust, it seemed like, for several blocks. And we're talking with these two guys, and they were about, they were probably a, a young 20s um, or so. And we had talked for over an hour. We talked for over an hour, sitting on the front porch of this cabin overlooking one of the, the streams there. And this, this guy's got one objection after another on why Christianity is not to be believed, why the Bible's not true, all this. And we just went through and best we could explained some of the things he, he didn't understand, how things were put together, when they were written, why, so and so. And after an hour of this, uh, we said, would you like to put your trust in Christ? And he said, I am not believing until Jesus comes and stands right in front of me. He's got to stand right in front of me. Or I won't believe. And my friend said, you know, that will happen, but it's going to be too late at that point. He turned to the other guy and said, what do you think? He said, he received Christ that night right there. He said, I want to believe this. I do believe it. So what is the highest source of knowing something? The Bible comes together with rational deduction, with empirical evidence, with historical testimony. 
And that is the highest method of knowing something is God's word. And so the author of the Bible is pleased by what Jesus said in verse 29. He's pleased when we receive the testimony of scripture and bow before him and say, my Lord and my God. So if you're a skeptic, I would say read John's gospel. I would just take a couple of chapters a day, a few chapters, and just read them and see what you think. Conclusion, John's purpose, end of the chapter, he says that he writes this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, I write these things just that you'll be orthodox or that your theology will be straight. He adds another purpose. He says, I write it that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. Real life. It echoes what Jesus had said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. If you don't know Christ, you may be very much alive, but in God's, by God's definition, you don't have real life, and often people don't even know it. And so to have the life that God created us for, uh, to, have, to have that, we must, we must find it in the Son of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that Christ was not only a man, but he was crucified and he was raised from the dead and that he lives today. Uh, Lord, may our trust be in him, in him only, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.